This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Jonathan Yaffe is not joking when he says our economy is changing. No, he isn't talking about the rise and fall of the stock market or the way consumers distribute their money. What he is talking about is a cultural shift from a things economy to one more focused on experiences. Jonathan knows this because he saw the shift happen firsthand during his days with Red Bull, where he learned the power of experiences, but also the deficiencies within the experience industry, especially when it comes to ROI. We were spending billions of dollars a year on this, and clearly it worked. But what drove me absolutely crazy is that we had no data. We had no data, no ROI. We believed that we were changing people's behavior by creating these massive, large-scale experiences all over the world, but we had no idea how they were actually working real time. On this episode of Marketing Trends, Jonathan, who is now the co-founder and CEO of AnyRoad, discusses why it's time for marketers to stop focusing on their products and instead think about how to turn their brands into an experience that will drive lasting lifetime value. Jonathan also details what makes for a successful experiential marketing strategy and which companies are doing that best. Enjoy this episode. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com marketing. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, host of Marketing Trends, and today we are joined by special guests. Jonathan, how are you? Good. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, great to have you on the show. Excited to chat about Any Road, and we're going to be talking a bunch about consumer experiences, which is you know very very topical right now, and uh, and you're at, at the forefront of that. So let's get started. How did you get started in marketing in the first place? Yeah. So my first job right after college uh, here in the Bay Area was at Red Bull. Red Bull had just come to the United States. Not that many people knew what it was yet. And I got started, you know, literally while I was still a student driving around the Red Bull car. Huge can on top, unlimited product, unlimited budget. We could do anything we wanted in Northern California as long as we found Pinos, which are people in need of energy. <laughs> Can't make this stuff up. And, uh, and then I moved into more of a marketing role and we were spending billions of dollars a year on experiences. And this completely blew my mind. The whole idea was that even back then, we believed that digital marketing was completely oversaturated. Every day, we see something like 14,000 advertisements every day. But if you click on an Instagram ad or receive a spam email or look at a, see a banner ad on the internet, there's zero engagement with the brand. Mm-hmm. But if you bring your family to this crazy Red Bull event and there are people jumping out of airplanes, going down mountains on tricycles, DJs playing, people are dancing, everyone's having an amazing time, and somebody comes up to you and hands you an ice cold Red Bull, that creates an emotional bond that not only changes your perception of the brand, but changes your behavior going forward. So we were spending billions of dollars a year on this, and clearly it worked, right? Red Bull has by far number one market share. But what drove me absolutely crazy is that we had no data. We had no data, no ROI. We believed that we were changing people's behavior by creating these massive, large-scale experiences all over the world, but we had no idea how they were actually working real time. And so that's, that's really how I got my start in marketing and what, what inspired 
the formation of any road. Yeah, super fascinating. I mean, I remember, and also, you know, Red Bull, it's like, I feel like has won so many awards, has had so many, you know, we ask people all the time, like favorite campaigns, people bring up Red Bull campaigns all the time, you know, truly a, a pioneer in the brand space, um, but also a level of consistency over the years, still doing the Red Bull gives you wings ads, you know, however many years later, um, and still giving us a, 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 a reminder, you know, all the time of, of, of when and why to, to drink Red Bull. It is interesting, though, like, to think of not having data for those type of events and just kind of trusting your gut back then and working on those large campaigns. How did you all think about ROI back then? So the, uh, the short answer is we didn't. I still remember I organized an event in, uh, with, with, uh, with my group here in San Francisco called Flugtag, which is uh, German for flying day, where people build these kind of planes and fly them off the pier into the ocean, into the bay. Oh, yeah, I've seen this. Yeah, so th- this was the first one in San Francisco. I think it was 2001 or 2002, if I remember correctly. And I still remember we had to write, uh, write up um, a memo for headquarters in Austria uh, about the ROI. And we were like, well, we spent $14 million on this. Uh, 50,000 people came and we gave out 70,000 Red Bulls. And like, that was it. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. where did this $14 million go? And who are these 50,000 people? Like, are these men, women, children, families? Are these people from San Francisco? Are people from, you know, across the Bay? Are these brand new people to the Red Bull event? Are these the same people come to all of our experiences? Like, and who drank these 70,000 Red Bulls? Like, was it one person who drank 70,000 Red Bulls or was it more evenly distributed? And then most importantly, how did they feel about Red Bull after the event? And even more importantly, did they actually consume more Red Bull going forward? And we knew nothing. You know, we tried to do some sort of ROI in terms of like on-premise reorders, right? So like if we had an event in San Francisco and then, you know, stores started running out of Red Bull 10% faster, we could try to attribute it. But like there was no actual science here. Yeah. And I think that there's so many things like that. You know, I remember back in the day, uh, you had people always talking about like the RBV, the Red Bull vodka, things like that. Like there were so many um, like kind of colloquialisms and and things with Red Bull that were happening that like are tough to to quantify and like to have like the long tail, you know, event, you know, happen with uh, any of those type of experiences is, is really hard. And obviously, we're, we're going to get into it here next. But um, it, it's something that I think any marketer who does any large scale event, especially consumer, you know, you're, you're constantly worried about like, is this actually, um, you know, driving results? So tell us a little bit about any road. Yeah. So the key takeaway here is now it's, you know, 20 years later, and nothing's changed. You know, we're, we're at the point where in, you know, in terms of digital marketing, we're, we're measuring every cookie time on site, repeat visits, like, you know, cost per click, conversion rates, like we're getting pretty good. Uh, you know, n- nothing's perfect yet, but like pretty good with measuring digital marketing so that if you are spending $100,000 on digital marketing this week, like you can go to your boss and say, hey, here's what the ROI was. Here's the conversion rate. Here's the CTR, et cetera. And what's crazy is nothing, when it comes down to experiential, nothing has changed since my time at Red Bull. You have the largest brands in the world that are investing hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars on experiences 
focused on behavioral change, right? So everything we do is under this big umbrella of trying to change people's behavior through experiential and it works, but people don't know how to measure that. They don't know how to optimize it. There's no data. And we're living in a very, you know, data-driven marketing world. And without data, it's just this kind of like, you know, we think it works. We see people smiling. And when I say experiences, I'm, I'm talking about online and offline experiences that are specifically meant for behavioral change, right? So, you know, BMW spends a billion dollars per year on driving experiences, on car test drives. They've even built their own theme park outside of Munich called BMW World, right? And not all these things fall necessarily under marketing, but it's all under this idea of changing behavior through experiences. Uh, you have brands like Lululemon that are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on in-store yoga classes and now also online yoga classes. They believe that if you come to this yoga, their yoga classes, that you will love Lululemon more, spend more money, increase your LTV, be more loyal. They have no idea if this is true publicly traded company. Home Depot spends about $800 million on classes and workshops. Same thing. They have no idea how to measure and optimize these things. So what we found is we're in the middle of a massive cultural and economic shift from a things economy to an experienced economy. And we see this across millennials that are spending way more money on experiences than things. We see this in terms of retailers that are literally shutting down every single week. Car ownership is declining in many countries all over the world. And, and then, you, you know, culturally, you have people like Marie Kondo who are like telling us, you know, pick up an object, asking you if it brings you joy and telling us to throw away our possessions. Like this would have never happened 50 years ago. Can you imagine somebody coming and say, everything you've bought in the last year, throw it all away if it's not currently bringing you joy. So both the cultural zeitgeist and the economy are really fueled by the shift to experiential. And what we see is that the brands that are thriving in you know, every vertical are really the ones that are turning into fully experiential businesses. But the problem is that this world still hasn't had the kind of data that it needs to really measure, optimize, and scale experiential as a, as a part of society. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, also in, in the mix there is the kind of deterioration of one size fits all advertising um, out of home uh, is you know obviously extremely difficult to track. Um, TV is becoming you know way less uh, prevalent unless you're talking about like certain huge events like obviously you know the NFL and things like that. Um, but there's a lot less you know TV shows and things that bring the entire you know or percentages of you know, if you're talking about the U.S., percentages of the U.S. together, advertising is done so much more one-to-one, so much more personalized. And the whole idea of like having, you know, an ad on the Super Bowl is you get to, you know, reach a lot of people, but also it's literally people sitting around talking about it, not just that it's reaching people, right? And so if there's way less opportunities to reach people at scale from an advertising perspective, to have those sort of like, you know, shared moments. And, you know, I think we all agree that, the thing that makes a 30 second ad great is when you can tell a story and actually, you know, move people. Well, you know, you just don't, you don't get that same level of fidelity with it, with an ad on, uh, you know, display, obviously, but even with a pre-roll for YouTube or something like that. So you have also this shift from, I think, large scale advertising that plays a huge piece in this as well. 
Totally, totally. And what we're seeing in, in you know, in, in verticals like in uh, CPG are that one of the big problems with, with you know, marketing in, in the CPG world is that they generally don't have any first-party data. And now with, you know, GDPR and CCPA, you, you know, these brands are limited from buying a lot of third-party data. Um, a great example is, is a brand like Gillette. I've been shaving with Gillette razors since I was like 12 years old, and Gillette has no idea who I am. Uh, meanwhile, Gillette's market share was, has basically been cut in half from like 90% to somewhere around 45%. And that's because of, of brands like Dollar Shave Club and Harry's that have built direct-to-consumer, which is not only a better economic model, but also they have one-on-one direct communication to all of their customers. Gillette has no idea who's purchasing Gillette products because you buy it through Walgreens or you buy it through CBS or Amazon and they don't actually have that direct line of communication, so they can't retarget, they can't actually build those relationships. And so what we see is a lot of CPG brands are actually using experiential uh, and scaling their experiential programs in order to actually capture that first-party data and then use it to uh, cross-advertise back to their existing customers. So what's what's the solution? What are the future of virtual events and online experiences? What, what does this all look like? From a, like a, any road technology perspective? Well, yeah, both. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, obviously they're going to be using, uh, everybody's going to be using any road, but I just mean from a, you know, from the user's perspective, from an experiential perspective, you know, you mentioned Lululemon, you know, sponsors all these yoga classes, like you mentioned, tons and tons and tons of, of, uh, you know, people want yoga. They seem like they're the perfect fit for that. That does, you know, the envelope math works for Ian. So how do they track that? How do they know if that works? Right. So currently they don't. And what we're, what we're basically doing is working with, you know, generally Fortune 2000 consumer brands who are doing experiences at scale or trying to scale their experiences, at least nationally, if not globally. And it's, it's all about the data. It's all about saying, look, we know that Ian lives in San Francisco, lives in Oakland, right? We know that he has, uh, he spends $100 per quarter at Lululemon on average. We know that he thinks Lululemon's okay. It's rated seven and he does yoga like once a month, not very seriously. So by designing experiences and yoga classes that specifically fit Ian, both demographically, geographically, you know, from a customer segmentation perspective, we can actually change his behavior. So he starts coming to these yoga classes because he's very engaged by it. And suddenly his net promoter score starts to change and we see him love Lululemon more. And then two quarters later, he starts spending $200 per quarter, basically doubling your LTV, doubling your lifetime value. So that's really the holy grail of experiential uh, is basically saying, what is this person? Who is this person? What is the experience taking place? And then if I can look at the pre and the post, I can actually see how these experiences are actually changing both the brand perception and the behavior of the customer. And then we do this at scale for millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of consumers. So I think, you know, one of the difficult part for marketers in that scenario would be that you have to go from marketing, you know, features and benefits, marketing, you know, t-shirts and athleisure wear uh, to marketing yoga classes, right? Which is, you know, a different thing. Not, not that it's not tangential, not that it's not, you know, related, 
but it is different, right? It's a, it's a different thing. How do, how do you think about, you know, people changing to market the experience rather than to market uh, the product? And is it potentially easier? Yeah. So I, I would argue that the best brands in the world are already doing this. Uh, Calvin, the CEO of Lululemon, came out and said, we are no, no longer a yoga company. We are no longer a clothing company. We are an experience company. You have the best brands who are basically saying things have become completely commoditized, right? If I want a pair of yoga pants, I can go on Amazon, order a pair of Amazon branded yoga pants or A6 yoga pants, or I don't even know all the different companies making yoga pants, Athleta yoga pants, and I will order whatever is, has the most stars, maybe whatever's cheaper, and it can be delivered to me same day by Amazon, maybe eventually through it by dropped on my uh, rooftop from a drone. So things have become completely commoditized. And the future, I believe, is I say, Alexa, order me yoga pants, and Amazon will just choose what brand to deliver. So the direction we're going is, is just this complete commoditization of things, right? So I believe that Lululemon, which is doing great as a company, I have a lot of respect for them, their future depends on marketing experiences way more than it depends on marketing things. Because what we've seen is that if people start participating in these experiences and feel that loyalty to the brand experientially, they will naturally buy more things anyways. So I, you know, I, I think that the best brands are not focused on marketing things. They're focused on marketing either a lifestyle or really their brand as an experiential, as an experiential item. So in this, in this sort of case, do you think that they would do like a builder buy scenario where it's like, do they say, okay, we're going to create Lululemon yoga classes and invite people to join them for free? Or would they go and like sponsor existing yoga classes, you know, go to whatever uh, uh, Groupon or I don't know if people still use Groupon, but go to, uh, you know, wherever it is and try to figure out where people are doing those things and just try to sponsor existing stuff. All of the best brands are building this in-house. One, you want to be able to have quality control over it. Two, you really want to be able to have, you know, your, your full fingerprint on it and bring in your DNA. You know, you have brands like Michael's, uh, the art store company. They have, you know, well over a million people a year who are taking art classes. Before this was all in store. Uh, now this is all on Zoom. You know, the future is hybrid, though. The future is that there are Zoom art classes and also in-store art classes. And they built this all from scratch with their like existing community of, of makers and creators. You have brands like HEB. HEB is a very large privately held um, supermarket chain based in, I think, in Austin. And they, they during the pandemic, launched this large network of uh, online cooking classes. You know, I, I think by bringing in people, they can by bringing in influencers, celebrities, whatever, they can amplify that. But really, we see that in-house experiences and when brands actually embrace experiential are far more powerful than sponsoring existing experiential programs. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious if, so like, what is that? Are they using it as like a revenue tool? Is it like a subscription revenue piece as well, where it's like, you would charge, you know, whatever, five bucks to do those classes and you make those classes cheaper than a random art class or, or would, or is it something where you, uh, you're just doing it all for free and it's just to get people in the door? Great question. Um, I'll answer that two ways. So 
a lot of brands do charge for them, but not to actually care about the revenue only because people don't really appreciate free things. So what we see is that, you know, if, if you're providing free experiences to your customers and you instead try to charge $5, then engagement and satisfaction go way up and no shows go way down. So people hate free things. People love paying for things. Uh, and you don't need to charge a lot, but just something to actually get that commitment. But the second piece is that when done really well, it's not about the money you make from the experience. It's about the engagement and the loyalty changes that you that you make to your customer base. For sure. So it's it's about the people who, you know, occasionally will go into Home Depot or Lowe's to buy something when they need to, but they start taking woodworking classes at Home Depot and suddenly their spend at Home Depot goes way up. They never go to Lowe's anymore because that actually inspires loyalty and that actually creates an increase in brand perception and an increase in lifetime value. Um, and that is by far uh, more advantageous than trying to nickel and dime customers with five ten dollars experiences. Yeah, I um, I wonder, like, what type of longer tail measurements are you looking at? You know, I think um, it was it was cited in in your all's press release. One of your investors is like, you know, I went to an Audi uh, Audi driving day, but I didn't buy an Audi that day. But six you know six months later, I bought one. Right, and I feel like that's so many of us you know, so often, right? It's like, hey, I don't need any clothes right now, but, uh, you know, I've been doing yoga for eight months. I've, I don't think I've ever done yoga, to be fully honest. But um, <laughs> yeah, maybe someday, 2021. But, uh, you know, I've been doing yoga for eight months. And then, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, half the people in my class have uh, Lululemon shirts, so I'm going to do that or, you know, or, or whatever it is. And I, and I think that, you know, part of the, part of the piece with this experience uh, you know, is about your peers, right? It's, it's about having an experience with other people. It's about like, you know, meeting people in class or, or things like that. I, you know, as someone who's, who's created events in the past, like you always talk about the, you know, intended consequences and also the unintended co- consequences, like, hey, how many people at this event, you know, met their next, you know, spouse or their next co-founder or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I think that those are, those are just important metrics not necessarily to to track per se, but uh, to be aware of that, like when you create experiences, you create opportunities for for serendipity that you know you can't really get with uh, with an advertisement. That's right. That's right. And you can do that, and you can do that even better at scale with data, right? So if I if I know that, you know, if 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 I do yoga every day, which I do not, but for hypothetical purposes, I'll make that argument, uh, and you have never done yoga, we should probably not go to the same yoga class, right? Like, so it's, so part of this is, is using data to look at uh, customer segmentation in much the way that we, you know, do on digital marketing these days, right? But ba- basically saying that if the two of us go to Lululemon together, we, we should be able to use this data and, and who we are as people and our, as customers to actually put us in classes that that are right for our demographic um, or our our you know yoga participation, and that by doing that we we can create more magic um, with with a uh, prediction algorithm. Another way, you know, we we work with a lot of uh, a lot of great breweries around the United States. Everyone from Brooklyn Brewery, Anchor out here, um, you know, Goose Island in Chicago, Budweiser, Miller Coors. Um, and these brew partners are amazing. 
Um, but, you know, sometimes people go who just don't drink, uh, you know, and generally, if, you know, I always thought if you're, if you don't drink beer, then you're not going to have a very good time at a brewery tour. So some of the, the, the larger breweries started actually building uh, specific experiences and designing them for people who don't really drink a lot. You know, like the science of beer making, beerology. If you don't drink, you might really enjoy learning about the science of, of beer making rather than go and like learning how to, you know, taste different types of hops. Oh man, I've been on enough, uh, my winery tours. My, my wife and I don't, don't really drink wine, but it's cool, right? It's like, it's a beautiful place. You're outdoors. You're, you know, you're walking around, you know, you don't really need to drink the wine. It's just a cool thing to do. And the crazy thing is the, the success of winery tours, and you just hit the nail on the head here, has very, very little to do with the quality of the wine and way more to do with the quality of the experience. It's about the people you meet along the way. Uh, so I'm curious, so you, you know, you talked about scaling these, about operationalizing these, which is tough, right? It takes a, it takes a pretty significant investment on your team to be able to operationalize that stuff that may or may not live within marketing. Marketing will for sure have a, is a stakeholder in that, but it may or may not. I'm curious, like how do, how do companies do these now? Like, do they build out a team that's like their experience team? Like what, what, what does this look like? Yeah. So generally our, our, our customers are focused on high volume, regular recurring experiences, right? So these are not kind of one-offs, like I'm going to throw a party. This is, I'm going to throw, you know, a thousand experiences or even, even 10 experiences every day uh, in multiple locations, often in multiple countries, often in multiple languages. And there are, two, there are you know, two general models that, that we've seen that have worked really well. One is, well, first of all, let me say, and I'm, without being you know, advertising anything here, like there needs to be software for this. You know, we, we've seen companies try to do this kind of like ad hoc, like email us to make a reservation or just walk in. That's fine to start. But really, because the, people are doing this for LTV and, and revenue growth, it's really all about the data, right? So there needs to be a, a platform to scale it. So first of all, people need to pick software. Second of all, the two ways that we've seen it are one, actually building kind of the operational team to, to really focus on scaling it. And it's not, it's not that difficult. It is, you know, it is some legwork. It is, you know, both the creative side of it and also the scaling side of it. And then the, also the marketing side of actually marketing these experiences to your existing customer base. The other thing that we've seen that has been really interesting is uh, the marketplace model, right? So we have uh, a number of customers that have basically used our marketplace platform. And when I say marketplace, I mean generally that the experiences are not being led by people who work at the company. So uh, Michael's is a great example of this. Michael's has over a million people taking art classes every year. But the art teachers, the people teaching these arts and crafts classes, are not Michael's employees. These are community members uh, who are, you know, are, are makers and are artists and craft people. And they're actually creating their own content. They're actually creating their own classes. They're deciding how much to charge for them. They're doing this both in-store and online. And they're actually making money from these classes. Michael's doesn't care, right? Michael's is supporting the, the crafter community while still actually getting like 
a customer base and building loyalty within all these people. We saw that over the pandemic, um, Nestle actually launched a, uh, under the Purina dog, dog food brand, they actually launched uh, puppy training classes, digital online puppy training classes. So pure, you know, th- these were not Nestle employees. These were these amazing, like well-known dog trainers from all over the United States. And if, and obviously a lot of people are buying puppies, you know, as a result of the pandemic anyways, but people needed to be able to, you know, learn how to train their puppies. Um, and so they, by building this marketplace, it basically allowed Nestle to take a step back and say, look, we're, we're, we're going to let the best puppy trainers in the, in, in the United States do the, do the training. We're going to market this to our customer base. And then Nestle basically built this community, this two-sided marketplace, and they benefited from having all the engagement and the data and, and their brand on top of it. So really, when, it, when you look at scaling, I mean, there's a reason that marketplaces scale so much faster uh, when it actually takes a lot, lot more curation at the beginning, but then a lot less work to just kind of get that flywheel spinning. I mean, I totally agree with everything you said. I would add, though, that it's a absolutely metric ton of work to get a marketplace off the ground and like a massive amount of investment to get both sides engaged and all that stuff. And that, like you said, once you get there, then then you gotta you get to reap the rewards. But in between there, you just have you know so many. Uh, when we've had a bunch of marketplace um, kind of marketers on this show, like Brian Rothenberg and people like that, that that have built some crazy marketplaces. Um, but it's really hard uh, to do. But I think the hardest part about the marketplace is that you have to build a business model to make money off of it. For these sort of things, if it's an extension of your product, it's a very different value proposition. Yes. Because it's like you're not, you're not trying to like get as much money as humanly possible out of you know, them taking puppy classes. You're trying to get them to you know, you know, buy dog food at the end of the day um, and, and become you know, brand loyal and, and have an affinity to you, know, to you all. And it's just a different... You're in a different business, right? When you're in a marketplace business, the only product you have is your marketplace, right? Like you're not selling something on top of that. And it's just a much more advantageous position if you're selling dog food and, you know, creating a marketplace for dog food classes than if you were just creating a marketplace for dog food classes and trying to like, you know, be the middleman and take a fee. You know what I mean? Right, right. No, I I, I totally agree. I mean, and the, the, you know, the fortunate piece of this is that in building these these experience marketplaces it's not really about you know the 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 revenue being driven to the to the company right they're benefiting from the from the you know the marketing that that happens at scale so i think, I think this is what you're saying but like they you know it's not about what their take rate is necessarily it's about you know i have this global community of artists and I'm bringing in millions of new customers and making my existing customers more loyal because of it. Yeah, for sure. So as folks are starting out doing this, like where does, where does your product, where does any road fit in? How do you, how do you all help people with this? Yeah. Yeah. So our, our platform has two sides. One is the, the scaling side. So it's really, you know, our, we power the operations, the payments, the class, the experience creation, CMS, we embed ourselves directly into existing systems and websites. 
we power the master calendar and the capacity utilization, the micro surveys, both pre and post every experience, right? Because we want to see that change from pre to post. We built our own natural language processing. So we're, we're going through millions of pieces of contextual feedback and, uh, and doing NLP on this. We're, we're pulling in uh, about 80 points of data from every single person who's participating in these experiences. And then this all gets correlated across purchase data, which is in you know, POS systems and CRM systems. It's all correlated against other survey data, both qualitative and quantitative. Um, and then what this turns into is real-time ROI for these businesses. So they can actually look at not only, you know, if I'm spending $500 million a year on experiential and I'm, you know, and I'm a Fortune 100 company, but also which of these experiences are working the best? What customer segments is this most advantageous for? You know, what is my ROI on that? How does that compare with all the money I'm spending on digital marketing? And then lastly, like, how does this actually translate directly into revenue, right? So if I knew that, as an example, if I knew that Ian would double his spend at Lululemon over the next two years, if I, if I can get you to come to these specific Lululemon yoga classes, and I, I knew that worked, well, then why don't I actually double down on scaling those particular kinds of yoga classes, find a bunch of other men in Oakland who who demographically look like Ian, who don't do yoga, but maybe have some Lululemon yoga, yoga clothing, and then basically scale that across the world. What are some of the things that companies do wrong as it comes to experiences? They, <laughs> they don't realize that there is actionable and important data as a part of it. You know, I think we've, we've gotten to the point where a lot of companies look at experiential as important. I think most, most companies that I talk to on a daily basis um, are bought into the fact that we're in an experience economy and they need to focus on experience. But there's this weird separation where they're taking the science and the statistics out of it. And so they're like, if, if you're a digital marketer, you need to know what your ROI is. You need to know what your CTR is. You need to know what your, you know, your repeat visits are and your CAC and all this stuff. And the second it gets to experiential, people are like, yeah, 300,000 people came to these experiences and people seem to like it. It's like, are you serious? Like, like there is, you know, we're, we're in an age where the biggest problem is people just kind of throwing experiences out into the ether and not actually looking at the data and acting like a scientist. And the interesting thing about experience, the experience economy and the reason that I personally love it so much is there is this balance between art and science. Um, you know, there's a lot of creativity involved in actually creating and building these experiences, but there has to be the science uh, implicit in what's working, what's not, let's make a hypothesis, and let's double down on what's working and scale that. And the brands that are thriving because of this are the ones that are actually connecting experiences directly to revenue. I would add that, and I'm curious if you've seen this, that, that so much of um, you know, experiences has to be you know, consistent and repeatable. And I feel like a lot of times people do pilots that are just like way too small, right? Yeah. Especially when you're trying to get someone to, you know, to go to a yoga class, for example, it's like, you can't kind of like trial that for two months. You know what I mean? It's just not really something that, that happens in that small of a time period. Like it's people have to, 
you know, find it and then find the class and, you know, is it on the right day of the week for them and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I'm curious if you've, if you've, if you've seen folks, you know, cut their, uh, cut their experiences short a little too early. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the right method is to just jump in. And I do think that people, tr- companies do try to pilot, you know, these kind of like one-offs, right? They're, you know, they'll say, okay, we're going to do something, but we're going to do three of them. It's like, are you, you know, is that an actual good statistics? Like, are you going to have enough data? Are you going to know what's working? Are you going to know how to double down on it? You know, like we have enough data from thousands and thousands of, of, of organizations to know that experiences overall work. Obviously, like, you know, that's a super blanket statement, but like experiences do change behavior, right? But we want to jump into it now and say, we still have to do this at enough scale to be able to do things like A-B test experiences, right? So let's get Ian to this, this yoga class and this yoga class and see which one actually impacts him more, right? Let's, let's actually create this brewery experience and this brewery experience and see which one actually results in higher sales and greater brand perception over the next two months, right? And so you, you can't just kind of like do one little thing to be able to do that. You really have to kind of just jump in with the intention of doing this at scale, both in terms of number and, and in terms of geography. That being said, it's way more important to focus on engagement than it is to focus on the number of people participating, right? You have great brands like Porsche, uh, that are doing amazing experiential uh, programs with like driving experiences. Porsche is not a mass market company. Most people are never going to own a Porsche in their lives. Most people cannot afford a Porsche. They're not going after trying to get everyone in the world to test drive a Porsche around a racetrack. So for them, you know, having a smaller number of people participate, but being able to target those correctly to the right to their customer base and actually convert people into future Porsche owners is, is far more, is, is far more important. Yeah. Funny. I'm not getting targeted by Porsche very much. I, uh, must, uh, <laughs> my, my need to make a little bit more money. Um, yeah, that's a great point. I'm, I mean, it's the same thing that we talk about with podcasts all the time. Same sort of idea. It's like, you know, people always want to have like a hit show for X, Y, or Z. And you're like, why? Like, do you, if you had 2 million, you know, listeners an episode for your, you know, whatever podcast, like, do you, you know, well, if you're, if you're, if you're Red Bull, absolutely. You want that. You know, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're Michaels, you want that. But if you're some other type of, you know, smaller uh, niche thing, like, are there actually 2 million people that are listening to your show that are actually your target demo? Or are you just, is there, you know, or are you just kind of, you know, you made something really cool that your customers probably don't care about? Totally, totally. And I, I think, I, look, I, I think all across different facets of business, this is, this is a problem and a misconception. I mean, you know, marketing trends, it's not, it's not about, uh, you know, how many listeners you have. It's about if you have the market, the key marketing executives from like all of the best and largest companies, I think that's a huge, a huge sign of success. Uh, and if you have, you know, my mom listening to it, that's probably, uh, you know, not the most interesting, uh, thing for, for you. Although I hope she's listening to this episode, uh, don't worry. She'll be here. (laughs) Um, shout out to Jonathan's mom. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's get into our lightning round questions. These questions are fast and easy, just like marketing with Salesforce. 
You can go to salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more about marketing on the world's number one CRM. That is Salesforce. They've been with us since the very first episode of this show, and we love Salesforce. Check them out. Salesforce.com slash marketing. Lightning round questions. Jonathan, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, for someone who's never been to Tokyo, what would be your number one thing you do first? Eat. <laughs> well, where, where, where should we go? I would uh, go to East Tokyo around neighborhoods like Kanda, where you can basically just get lost in these alleys and check out some really small, uh, incredible restaurants. Some of them only have a couple seats, uh, but really some uh, you know, of the old, old Tokyo Edo-style Edo sushi places are just uh, mind-blowing. What was your favorite experience from, uh, from 2020? Wow. Favorite experience from 2020? Uh, I moved. I actually moved uh, right before the, uh, the, the pandemic started, and I feel very fortunate to be able to uh, not work uh, inside of a closet uh, or take Zoom calls in the bathroom. So actually having a little bit of space, and, uh, and that's, that's done everything. And boy, have we all been there. <laughs> Favorite book or podcast that you checked out in the last year? I'm really a big fan of uh, a, a book called uh, What You Do Is Who You Are. Uh, by Ben Horowitz. Uh, it happens to be one of our investors, but it's it's a really incredible book on culture, and all, obviously it's you know touches on culture of of, of companies and tech companies, uh, which I think is is very important for me. But he uses examples from history, uh, including like the the Haitian Revolution, the Haitian slave slave revolution, and uh, samurais in Japan, um, and uh, prison gangs to actually show how different uh, movements throughout the world have actually built and, and strengthened culture. And it's, it's a fascinating look. Best advice for a first-time CEO? Move quickly. You know, the, the best thing I think about startups compared to large companies is, is just speed. Good investor of ours, uh, James Courier, says, anyone can beat a chess master uh, if you can move two moves for every time that they move one. So being able to actually move fast uh, is, is really, you know, startup superpower. What is one question you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? It's a great question. This, this is it. This is the question that I never get asked. <laughs> Touche. All right, Jonathan, that's it. That's all we got for today. Uh, been awesome having you on the show. Everybody should check out anyroad.com if you want to learn more about you know, making great experiences in, in 2021. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Just want to plug any road and, and, and focus on the fact that, you know, the, the experience economy is real. It's, uh, it's propelling brands faster than, than we ever expected, and including in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, and so I really am looking forward to seeing brands continue to invest heavily in experiential. I believe from a personal perspective that that the world is becoming less materialistic. Uh, and I think brands, even if they're brand selling things, that by becoming less materialistic and focusing on experiences, it really makes the world uh, a lot closer to each other, so. Awesome, totally agree. Thanks so much and take care. Thanks, have a great day, guys. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, 
we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.